You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. I want to open with a story about Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell is considered one of the best violinists in the world. When he performs... He earns, on average, somewhere north of $1,000 per minute. In 2007, Bell performed an experiment. He entered a busy subway in a municipality, put on a baseball cap, regular clothing, went incognito, and he performed on his violin. Now, during this time, over 1,100 people passed him by. Seven actually stopped to listen to him. And while he was busking, he earned $52.17. Seven years later, he decided to do the same thing, except this time it was announced that he would be performing in the subway. The station was absolutely packed. Thousands and thousands of people came. And once Bell saw the audience, he exclaimed, this is more like it. I share this story because context matters. Understanding the larger environment, something fits within, helps us to make sense of what we see and hear and perceive before us. This is the value of a framework. And today, it is my privilege, Asbury, to share with you our new chapel framework as we move forward. Staff and faculty have gathered together beginning this summer to put this together, and I just wanted to share this time, during this time with you, share about this framework and share about this philosophy. Indeed, this will constitute our chapel philosophy, how we choose a message, how that message maps back to our framework, and of course, how it edifies our larger community. So let me start with our chapel mission. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this very long for the the sake of time, but there are two things that I want to point out here. First and foremost, you see inspire and challenge, emboldened. Now, I hope our chapels inspire you. That's really, really important. But I also hope that our chapels challenge you. Not just challenge your mind, but challenge your heart. When I think about the chapels that moved the needle spiritually for me, They were the ones where my heart was beating out of my chest, that I couldn't stop the train in my mind, that my palms were sweaty. So I want you to be inspired and I want you to be challenged. The second thing I'd point out about this, you'll see that this is composed of individual and communal elements of the Wesleyan holiness tradition. Let me name the four that we will look at. First, the individual elements are heart holiness and the mind of Christ. And the more communal elements would be Christian witness and kingdom community. So this chapel today is going to be a little bit different because I want to emphasize the different areas, the material within these elements for you. So let's start with heart holiness. Asbury University is a Christian liberal arts university in the Wesleyan holiness tradition. And one of the aims of Wesleyan holiness theology is the desire to live a holy life. That is, 
the directionality for a person of faith is toward holiness or sanctification, which simply means being purified and set apart. Sometimes in our tradition, we describe this as entire sanctification. So what does this mean? And let me start by telling you what it is not to get at what it is. First and foremost, sanctification or entire sanctification is not full consecration. I'm going to use some theology words here. Consecration is a declaration that you are committed to God. It is our faithful response to God's call. And this is good, and this is very important, and it's very necessary in the life of faith. But it is not the same thing as sanctification, because entirely consecrated Christians may still have sinful strongholds in their life that separate them from God. Really appreciated Stephen's testimony a couple of weeks ago in our student chapel. Sin separates us from God. Second, entire sanctification is not the freedom from all temptation or freedom from the possibility of sin. I've said before that the inability to sin is not the same thing as the ability not to sin. (laughs) Did you catch that? The first says you can't. The second says you don't have to. The ability or the capacity to sin will always be present in our lives, but that does not mean that succumbing to it is inevitable for the life of the Christian. Third, entire sanctification is not what is referred to as imputed righteousness. Again, another term. Now, imputed to impute means to assign. So, imputed righteousness is the mistaken idea that God assigns that God puts this veneer of holiness or righteousness on us, even though we are neither holy nor righteous. Those who subscribe to imputed righteousness believe we continue in our sorrowful, sinful selves, but God simply views us as clean, purified, holy, and set apart, even though we aren't. Have you seen the bumper sticker that says, Christians are just like you, but forgiven? That might be uh, a catchy bumper sticker statement, but it is not consistent with the biblical witness. Jesus died so that you and I could live upright, godly lives in this present age, as Paul says in Titus, not so that we can look and act like everyone else. So what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be sanctified? Being entirely sanctified means that, A, we can experience perfect love, and B, we need not live in the grip of sin. To describe perfect love, one scholar says it this way, the goal of the process of sanctification is perfection in this life. That is, the perfect possession of the perfect motive, love of God and love of others, the perfect possession of the perfect motive. And of course, not living in the grip of sin. Another way to say this is, we need not willfully sin. Many of you remember Dr. Chris Bounds. He says, holiness is freedom from the guilt, power, and nature of sin to be empowered to love God, love others, and walk in obedience. So if holiness is freedom from sin, what is sin? Well, we've heard different descriptions throughout our lives, you and I. You might hear that it is missing the mark 
or that it is lawlessness. A more Sunday school answer would be a voluntary transgression against the known will of God. But there's another definition that says the heart curved in upon itself. Now, all of these definitions are true, but I want to bias you towards this fourth understanding. Wesley understood sin as both an act and a nature, the former being a transgression, the latter being a dispositional bent, the heart curved in upon itself. Holiness, therefore, is a dispositional change or the establishment of the love, love of God in the soul without any rival, as Wesley puts it. Why? Because holiness means being so filled with God that there is no room for sin. Now, let me be clear, Asbury, this is not moralism. This is not do's and don'ts. This is fullness. G.K. Chesterton wrote an essay in the early 1900s just simply called A Piece of Chalk. And what he was saying was, my favorite color, chalk, is white. He used to draw on brown paper. And he said, a lot of my friends say that white is the absence of color, but actually it's the fullness of all color. It's the reflection of all color. Now, he wasn't making a statement about race or, or anything else. That would be a mistake. What he was saying was white is the fullness of all color, and similarly, virtue and holiness is the fullness of God. Holiness is not the absence of sin merely. It is the fullness of God. And fullness, among other things, means no resistance. There's no room for it. My father-in-law likes to put it this way, Dr. Hubert Harriman. He says, holiness means the kick is out. Like a horse responding to its owner, it responds to the reins without bucking. There is no more kick. There is no more pushing back on God's authority. Dennis Kinlaw says, there are no more no's in your heart. Phoebe Palmer, that great promoter of Wesleyan theology, holiness theology, says, every fiber in my being is now intertwined with God, my creator. Asbury, I, I want to tell you, this is an optimistic theology. It's an optimistic theology. It's good news. We believe that we can be changed. We believe that we don't have to live in defeat. We believe that you and I can live victorious lives. This makes us different. So when we talk about this frame, when you hear messages in Hughes Auditorium that relate to holiness and sanctification and perfect love, whole life transformation, Christian practices that liturgize and habituate us into followers of Christ who are different and set apart, a holistic approach to life formed into followers of Jesus, all of this relates to our first frame, heart holiness. Let me talk about the second frame, having the mind of Christ. In Matthew 16, Jesus famously admonishes Peter. You remember this. Jesus talks about that he has to die, even though he is the Christ. And Peter says, God forbid it. This should never happen to you. And what does Jesus say back to him? You know the story. He says, get behind me, Satan. He literally calls Peter Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Here's our takeaway from this. 
We want to sharpen our minds as people of faith. Specifically, we want to set our minds on divine things. We want to think like Jesus thinks. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We want to have a biblical mindset. William Blake says, seen through the eye, with a conscience, with a heart, with a biblical mindset. And how do we cultivate the mind of Christ? How do we discern theological truths? Well, the good news is, another fancy word, in our tradition, we talk about the Wesleyan quadrilateral. This was not an expression Wesley used. There was this thing called the Anglican triad of reason and tradition and scripture, and it's just simply building upon that. Scripture, reason, experience, and tradition. Now, let me be clear. When we say quadrilateral, that doesn't mean these four things are equal. Actually, uh, there's a, a picture here, one slide before. Uh, Dr. Cheryl Crow Johnson uh, put this together, and I think it's excellent. Uh, what it shows is that Scripture is a baseline. Uh, scripture is more important than these other elements. But let me talk about these elements. First and foremost, experience. When we talk about our experience, this can be testimonies of what God has done in the lives of his people uh, or our encounter with Jesus. We hear of Christians who describe the guiding presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Wesley talked about uh, his heart being strangely warmed at Aldersgate. Steve Deneff, who has spoken here before, students affectionately uh, call him Crouching Tiger. He's talked about impulses that he cannot muster up on his own. Christians experience answer prayer. They experience relationship to God. So our experience matters. Our reason matters. Having a well-furnished mind. We're an academic institution. We want to be great thinkers. Thinking carefully about how we build our minds, how we think about complex things. How we possess a Philippians 4, 8 mind, whatever is true and honorable, good, pure, pleasing, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Put those things in your mind. Learning to discern what is smut or rubbish and what is not as we build our minds. Learning to make good arguments. Learning to break apart bad arguments. Learning to look at something and say, does the conclusion follow the premises? Let's talk about tradition. Tradition is a scaffolding that you and I inherit. It's a good thing. Not all traditions are good, but that doesn't mean tradition itself is bad. One of my favorite essays is by the theologian Stanley Hauerwas. It's called Sin Sick. He writes this, imagine a medical student who might say, I'm not really into anatomy this year. I'm really into people. I'd like to take another course in psychiatry. That student would be told, we don't care what you're into. Take anatomy or ship out. Havra says, that is real moral education, if not formation. Why is a medical education so morally superior to Christian education, Havra says? I think the answer is simple. No one believes that an inadequately trained priest or pastor might damage their salvation, but people do believe that an inadequately trained doctor might hurt them. Tradition matters. Tish Harrison Warren, brilliant mind, Anglican priest. She points out that tradition is not an impediment to freedom. Rather, the guidance and the guardrails of tradition secure our freedom. She says, I'm grateful that I can speak 
as an autonomous, unbridled voice, that I cannot speak as an autonomous, unbridled voice. Instead, I have a large, international, historically grounded body that prays for me, that supports me, and that also makes sure I don't accidentally or intentionally lead others astray or invent ideas that damage the church. A.W. Tozer says, idolatry is simply imagining things about God and acting like that's true. You see, tradition allows us, among other things, to better navigate the ethical complexities and nuances of the world around us. Consumerism, nationalism, sexuality, individualism, modern idolatries, or even specific ethical questions like women in ministry, suicide, ethnic diversity. John Wesley was notable among his contemporaries for how outspoken he was against slavery. And let me talk about Scripture. Scripture allows us to understand the realities of the world around us through a particular lens. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, we take every thought captive, we hold it, and we make it obedient to Christ. Having a biblical mindset. I've talked before about this very important verse in Luke 10, 26. Remember where Jesus is asked, what's necessary to inherit eternal life? And he says, what do the scriptures say? How do you read it? What do the scriptures say? And do you interpret what the scripture says correctly? Richard Hayes describes the the necessity of a responsible hermeneutic. And he says there are various appeals in scripture to guide action To begin, we have rules, direct commandments or prohibitions, love your enemies, honor the Sabbath, things like this. We also have principles, general frameworks of moral consideration by which particular decisions about our actions are to be governed. Think of Jesus saying, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Hayes says, we have paradigms, stories, or summary accounts of characters who model exemplary conduct. The parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the talents, Paul's speech at the Areopagus. And then we have symbolism, a world that creates the perceptual categories for which we interpret reality. I think of Revelation 19 that says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Or Ephesians 6, where Paul is talking about the full armor of God. Now, these categories relate to the idea of openness. And this helps us to understand Scripture. Think on on the one hand of a train schedule. A train schedule is not an open text. It tells you one thing, what time the train comes and what time it's leaving. And then compare that to something like a Walter de la Mer poem. (laughs) If you've not read him, he's fantastic. Read The Listeners. Where there is a lot of openness... Ten people could read a Walter de la Mer poem and have ten different interpretations. One key mistake in biblical interpretation relates to mixing these different areas. For example, treating symbolism like a command or treating a command like symbolism. Here's my point. It's not simply enough to read Scripture, but again, go back to what Jesus says, and how do you read it? How do you interpret it? Moreover, exercising the mind of Christ means superimposing biblical, spiritual, theological truth onto the grid of the world around us. I've said before in here, if the world is talking about it, I want you and I 
to talk about it biblically. When we don't talk about certain things at this school, we relegate that conversation to a larger culture. Sex, politics, diversity, creation, money, finances, human purpose. If we're not discussing those things in here, biblically, we give that discussion over to what I would argue is a less responsible culture that has its own liturgical schedule. So, in summary, when you hear messages and cues that relate to having a well-furnished mind, Christian thinking about current issues, a Christian lens or worldview, Wesleyan holiness theology, scripture-centered teaching, a responsible biblical hermeneutic to interpret scripture and apply it to our daily lives and context, this will all relate to the second dimension of our chapel frame, the mind of Christ. These are the two individual elements. Let me talk about the communal elements of our chapel frame. Hands of service or our Christian witness. We've talked about our heart holiness. We've talked about the mind of Christ. But what does it mean for us to act faithfully in the world around us? What does it mean to have holy hands as a function of our mind and our heart? Martin Luther uh, and Wesley believed sola fide, faith alone, was sufficient for justification. Yet Wesley also believed that if your faith is alone, then it probably isn't faith. Indeed, for Wesley and for any person who claims the lordship of Jesus Christ, salvation is not simply a way to heaven, but it is a way on earth. How you and I live in the here and now. Now, in one way, this relates to evangelization. Now, I know this term conjures a lot of images, but let me put it this way. I used to work with a guy in banking. He was a manager over a lot of people. And so in banking, if any of you are familiar with that industry, there's a lot of internal promotion. And so a lot of people would apply for jobs from within the bank. And this individual used to tell people, you can interview for a job that comes up, but just remember, Every day is an interview. Every day you're here is an interview. I think there's a Christian parallel here. Every day is a day that we evangelize. Every day you and I are bearing witness to what we believe and what we affirm is ultimate, who our king is and where we claim our citizenship. And by the way, this is not something that you and I have to force ourselves to do. It's a natural overflow from who we are in Christ. And it is born out of love. One of my favorite things that Wesley says, the, the great banquet he describes in Luke 14, he says, compel them with all the violence of love. And I have to ask myself, do I love others violently? Am I willing to bear witness in that manner because I have a violent love for them? This is not just evangelization, but it's how I treat my neighbor. So much of scripture talks about justice as righteousness, about right relations with others, about right relations with God. For Wesley, this very much includes service and acts of mercy. Now, something that's unique in our tradition, when we talk about acts of mercy, these are a means of God's grace. Visiting the sick, visiting prisoners, service to refugees, 
food, clothing, shelter for the homeless, fighting systems of oppression. I mentioned earlier how Wesley was very outspoken against slavery. And again, this is a means of God's grace. It's not simply about the recipient of our action and our mercy. It's about us as well, that we are beneficiaries of this. I used to be involved in a prison ministry for several years up at Blackburn Prison in Lexington. Someone asked me once, do the prisoners get much out of you coming to speak there? I was like, I don't know, probably not. I get something out of it. It is a means of grace for three hours on a Sunday night to spend time with these individuals blessed me. I don't say that selfishly, but it was a better way for me to understand God. We see this throughout church history, especially in churches cut from the cloth of the Wesleyan tradition. Free Methodists were abolitionists. Promoted by Anglicans, Sunday schools were first and foremost spaces to teach children how to read. The first college chartered to grant degrees to women was Wesleyan College in Macon, Georgia. Indeed, the Wesleyan Church has ordained women in ministry for over 140 years. And of course, we could talk about the Salvation Army, an institution that is entirely Wesleyan in its orientation. By the way, the Salvation Army is not just an organization, it's a church. And it's a church that services more than 30 million people every single year. They provide food and shelter, drug and alcohol, rehabilitation. 82 cents of every dollar earned by the Salvation Army goes to help someone through their services. I am so proud that we're one of the only colleges in the United States that has a Salvation Army Student Center right here on our campus. Service as an overflow of our heart and our mind. Think of what the world would be like if we waved some magic wand and all of these institutions disappeared. So to summarize, heart holiness and the mind of Christ will naturally overflow and spill over into other dimensions of our lives. Christopher West says, love by its nature seeks to expand its own communion. Isn't that a great quote? Love is generative. It's always seeking to expand its own communion. So when you hear messages and cues that relate to acts of mercy as a means of God's grace, evangelization, missions, service, acts of charity towards others, orphans, widows, aliens, all in the name of Christ, when you hear about compassionate engagement as holy action, the integration of heart and hands through reflection, when you hear about neighborliness and how we relate to those who are around us, it will all relate to the third dimension of our chapel frame, the hands of service and Christian witness. Let me conclude with our fourth, kingdom community. There's an author, Harold Kushner, who wrote once about a famous uh, anthropologist that spent years studying chimpanzees in the wild. And in their discussion, they offer this quote, one chimpanzee is no chimpanzee. In other words, an isolated chimp cut off from the community, has no sense of self, of meaning, or belonging, of purpose. It's as if, she says, they should not even exist. I think something parallel can be said about the faith community and people of faith. One Christian is a no Christian. I used to have a friend who said, I don't want all the drama of the church. Jesus and I 
have our own thing. That's not correct. I don't think that's a good way of thinking about it. We don't bypass the Christian community in our quest to be Christian. Our faith is never sharpened in spite of the church. It is sharpened through the church. Our faith was never meant to be received and apprehended and lived out in individual isolation. It was always meant to be internalized and enacted through a community. Right? Remember that, that famous verse in Genesis 1:26, let us make humankind in our image. As Dr. Brian Hall says, we were created out of community for community. Indeed, the narrative arc of Christianity starts with communion and it ends with communion. God's kingdom is a community. It's a banquet. I've talked before about uh, Sartre, his famous play, No Exit, this, this statement, hell is other people. I think of Henry David Thoreau in that wonderful book of his, Walden Pond, saying, I've never met a companion as companionable as solitude. Now, if this is your attitude, it's not a matter of whether you get in to heaven. The question is whether you would even want to be there. And let me say, not only is God's kingdom a community, it is a global community. Every tribe, every tongue, every language. To paraphrase Wesley, all are invited to the great banquet table, but we don't get to choose our dinner guests. Bishop Will Williman, also used to be a chaplain at Duke, tells a story of during the Iraq war, their associate minister was praying, prayed for the Americans in Iraq. But then she prayed for the people in Iraq, as well as the people that live in conditions of war or the threat of war. After the service, a, a woman accosted Bishop Williman and said, shame on you. Shame on the church. You are literally praying for our enemies. <laughs> Williman said, pray for our enemies. Gosh, that sounds familiar. He reminded her that in worship, they were participating in a very different world, a different citizenship. That world, he says, is characterized by a biblical view of humanity and the belief that it is God's world and that he is at work within it. A world where Jesus Christ died for all so that all may have the opportunity for eternal life. I said here last week, if you take the Gospels and you, you put it into some kind of literary sieve and you shake that sieve around, one of the themes that you will be left with is this, things are not what they seem. Citizenship in heaven transcends our boundaries, our categories, our commitments in the here and now. So Asbury, when you hear messages and cues that relate to the importance of church community, how we live together, being the local and global church, recognizing and celebrating the diversity of God's kingdom, Imago Dei theology, a global church mindset. In other words, that God is at work throughout history and God is at work throughout the world. And a theology of mercy and justice, it will all relate to the fourth dimension of our chapel frame, kingdom community. So let me close. I've said a lot. I could say a lot more. 
but I wanted to give you a taste. This is our philosophy. Again, context matters. I want all of our messages that come from this pulpit in Hughes to map back to this frame. At Asbury, we want chapel to be a place of growth. We want it to be a place of inspiration, but we want it to be a place where you are challenged. We want chapel to be a place of belonging, coming together as a community to worship as one body. As Paul says in Romans, to present ourselves, which is plural in Greek, as a living sacrifice, which is singular, holy and pleasing unto God. And we want to be better followers of Jesus. We want to be better versions of ourselves. And may the world be better for it.